Welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Leo, an activist focused on digital psychological warfare operations in Myanmar. Leo and his team use social media to contact soldiers in the Tatmadaw, sending them messages, memes and other media with the aim of subtly influencing them. The ultimate purpose of these operations is to change the soldiers' behaviour, to bring about defection, desertion or to demoralise them to the degree that they can no longer contribute to the military's fight. Here Leo talks about the defection process and the aims of psychological warfare as well as strategies used, while also touching on the ongoing issue of quote-unquote experts, who are out of touch with the situation on the ground and continue to inadvertently aid the military's own propaganda. He delves into the mindset of both soldiers and senior military generals, exploring motivations for defection, including personal cost, and what tips the balance for those who make the decision to change sides. Leo also encourages the wider diaspora and those with an interest in Myanmar to join the psychological warfare campaign and to stop engaging with bad, quote-unquote, experts particularly on platforms like Twitter. Please note, in order to protect both Leo and operations he is involved in on the ground, his name has been changed and his voice has been altered. Let's start the conversation. So, Leo, obviously we're here today. You're going to talk to us a little bit about psych war um, and how that's been operating in Myanmar since the coup. But obviously we need to be really careful here and uh, in not disclosing too much or, or who you are. So is it possible for you to share a little bit about who you are or at least kind of where you are right now, like you're in countries or can you tell us something so our listeners get a sense a little bit of who you are or will we just bypass any introductions? It's okay, I can tell. I'm Leo and I'm in Myanmar and I am involved in digital psychological warfare operations mainly to get soldiers to defect and also to demoralize them. Okay, I like this idea of to demoralize them. I understand defections, but what what do you mean by that? Can you explain a little bit about that? Right. Demoralize them, meaning that they lose their capability to fight. So the whole purpose of psychological warfare is to change their behavior. It's a behavior-changing mechanism. And the behavior that we want is either for them to defect or to desert, or to be demoralized. Either of the three will achieve our goal of debilitating the military's ability to wage war. And if they cannot wage war, then we have a better chance of winning, because militarily, they are much stronger opponents. And how successful have you been to date, Leo? We have seen, obviously, a number of defections in soldiers, and we've seen two groups in the last while spring up. We have the People's Embrace, and we also have People's Soldiers, so two groups that are dedicated to supporting and helping soldiers who want to defect. So do you see this as something that has been successful, or is it too early to tell? Or can you tell us how you judge it at the moment, if it's working, if it's helpful? So it's always hard to measure someone's psychological progress. Even a normal psychologist treating a normal patient will say it's very hard. So how do we measure the, the psychological change in soldiers whom we don't meet? So it's not an exact science. But so far, it has been successful because we have seen an increase in the number of defections. And we have also seen an increase in the number of inquiries 
by soldiers who want to defect. And we ourselves have seen changes in behavior by the soldiers because we are very closely in touch with them. And we can see just from what they are posting, what they are saying, that they are demoralized, they are exhausted from fighting. And in addition to that, we have talked to soldiers ourselves who want to defect. How do you do it, Leo? What, what are the strategies? What is psychological warfare? Is it text messages to soldiers? Is it Facebook posts? How, how, does, how is this orchestrated? Uh, there's no textbook on how to run a, maybe the, maybe the KGB has it, but we don't have the textbook, but it's pretty exhaustive and we've tried many, many methods. So, but the one good thing is that, you know, the soldiers, they use a lot of social media. They use Facebook, TikTok and VK, which is the Russian social media app. So through these, we can actually reach uh, tens of thousands, if not a hundred thousand or more soldiers. Uh, you can create an account right now and easily befriend a thousand soldiers within a week. And through that, you know, we can reach them messaging, posting on our uh, social media accounts, posting on our social media pages, which they have liked and followed over the past months. We also have access to uh, their phone numbers that we've obtained through some means. Uh, we have phone numbers of military, lots of military officers as well. And through those, we have been uh, disseminating our propaganda also through Viber, normal text messaging, and now through Facebook, VK, and TikTok. Is is your propaganda political or is it more like this is what's happening in villages, this is what's happening to humans because of the actions of the army or is it both? Uh, it's both, you know, because no one really knows what type of content will resonate with them. So you have to do all sorts of approach. We have written content, we have um, produced propaganda that is both mild and sweet, but also some that are plainly rude and also... <laughs> Uh, and uh, threatening, saying, you know, you're going to die if you don't join the people right now, or this is your fate. So many of you are getting killed. And this is actually good messaging because it is true that so many of them are getting killed. So if they don't want to die, then why be fight? In fact, one uh, propaganda that I wrote is, if you don't want to die, then don't fight, which is very simple. And uh, there was actually a very uh, popular post amongst them. And another is, the title of the post is, every time we go in the car, it's like riding the car to death. Because now, across the country, they're getting blown up by mines. And uh, they're already scared, they're already feeling the heat. And these type of posts really rub it in their face. And whether or not they, they will affect in large numbers, we have yet to see, though. Leo, I have um, a friend who has connections to the military, not like they are obviously um, anti-military and they have joined the resistance movement, but they do still have sporadic contact with some distant family members who are living in military communities. And um, one of the things, you know, they've said to me that they're confident that their extended family members don't want to stay in the military. But it's really, really, really difficult to leave. And um, one of the things that they mentioned was having been put into a group of like about five soldiers, kind of to kind of keep an eye on each other to make sure no one uh, defects. So they're kind of they can't go anywhere without these other few people. Have you heard things like that? Is 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 that is that what's actually happening? That they're being put into groups with people to watch each other. Um, so it's getting harder and harder for them to, I guess, defect or, or have an opportunity to leave. I I, I don't know about that, but. Uh... For decades, the military has a very strong uh, internal intelligence unit that closely monitors the thoughts and the beliefs of its own members. Uh, this is something that's, that, you know, General Inouye instituted a long time ago. And military intelligence is a very strong 
In every dictatorial state, there's always an inter-military intelligence apparatus that is to make sure that all other members are kept in line. In the Nazis, we have the Gestapo, and in Iran, we have the Revolutionary Guard. And its whole purpose is a, a paramilitary force. And within the Damarol, the military intelligence is the quote-unquote paramilitary force that is closely monitoring. So I wouldn't be surprised if they do that. Uh, they have done a much worse thing. And we've also heard reports in the last few days of the military taking phones away from soldiers who are stationed in the western side of the country. And apparently soldiers were given two days notice and then told that their phones would be taken. Do you see that as a, as a real problem for you guys going forward if this continues? Because it seems like technology is one of your main ways of contacting the soldiers. Uh, actually, you know, the military has done this for a very long time. It's not so breaking news. Uh, and the military always checks the phones of the soldiers. But actually, it is good that the military is doing that because, in a way, the phone's an outlet for many of the soldiers. You can just create a fake account and you can see many of the soldiers. They are using TikTok. They have been using uh, Facebook as if they are teenagers, you know, or young young kids, I should say, or young, young men, I should say. Like any other young men, uh, they post stories, uh, they do silly videos, whatnot. Uh, and this is the outlet from the cruel reality that they're living. And if the military, the Ohio officers are going to take them away, now they're just going to be you know, waiting in their misery, which is great. The more miserable they are, the better it is for us. So it is actually good because these people will soon, uh, what will they do? They, you know, they are sitting in their barracks or in their base or whatever. And they are just now... Before, at least they had something to take their minds off. But now they're just going to be sitting and being pissed. And that is great. Uh, the more angry they are, we just have to make sure that they channel their anger towards their superior officers. Do your posts ever get blocked by social media outlets? Do Facebook and TikTok ever censor what you say? Uh, yes, yes, of course. You know, because um, what we're doing is uh, against Facebook rules and regulations. But uh, it's a cat and mouse game, so we have to make sure that uh, Facebook doesn't detect our activities. But they do sometimes, and they take down uh, dozens of our accounts as well. They take down dozens of military accounts. They take down dozens of our accounts. But it's okay. We can always create more. But it takes time. Uh, it's it's a, quite a manual effort to really tap into the ecosystem of the military ecosystem. Uh, because how Facebook algorithms work, as we all know, is uh, they try to connect like with like. So the more you use it, the more you become embedded in the network. Uh, you get recommendations from the propagandists. Uh, you actually get recommendations from the military mouthpieces. And that's how you become entrapped in their own network. Facebook is enabling that. Leo, one of the things, I, I, I'm going to quote somebody, and I'm quoting him not because he's an expert. He's actually, sounds like a bit of an idiot, really. But I'm just going to quote you from John Blacksland, who is a professor of international security and intelligence studies. And he posted on social media in response to an article about soldiers deserting their bases yesterday. And he said, I'm worried this will backfire. Coaxing Tatmadaw's deserters will make matters worse, triggering more violence. What would you say to a comment like that? Uh, the comment is nonsensical because uh, I, I don't know what causation he is trying to imply. I, I might as well say, uh, don't eat pizza. I fear it will backfire. The world might become more violent. Uh, what does it mean? It's grammatically correct, but well, what is the causational logic behind what he's saying? And I mean, as a professor, I think <laughs> maybe maybe it's because Twitter is limiting his characters. But right now, it's a nonsensical statement. 
And yeah, I mean, it, it could be, it could be Twitter characters. Uh, it could just be, you know, somebody. There's a lot of these guys um, on on Twitter and these places who, you know, there, there's a sense that they're almost helping the military, whether indirectly or unintentionally, that they are actually helping the military psychological warfare operations. It, do you see that as, as a problem? These so-called experts or these people who are not in touch with what's going on on the ground and then with these huge platforms, is that a problem you worry about? I'm undecided. You know, David Chappelle, uh, in one of his stand-up shows, said, I don't care about Twitter because it is not a real place, which is good. But the problem with developing countries like us is that uh, the West has the monopoly over production of knowledge. And it is the Western media and the Western journalists and the Western academics that has the privilege of credibility. And although he, nobody really cares, nobody on the ground really cares what he says, because he's part of the hegemonic system, you know, I think it might have an impact, even though he is spouting it on Twitter. And so that is a concern that I, I have, you know, nobody really cares because it is said on Twitter, or maybe he says it online. But at the end of the day, we still live in a world where information production, I call it information production, knowledge production is still monopolized by the West. I guess the West isn't blocked, is it? I mean, Myanmar has a, a number of journalists in prison right now, China imprisons journalists for, for what they release also. So I guess that the issue is that you've got people who have this, this platform, they're unregulated and they're not checked up upon because the people from the country that have the voice and have the knowledge don't have the platform. And it's, it's, yeah, exactly what you said, basically. So it's the people that are giving this news out who are able to, are able to not be challenged because of the countries that they've had the privilege to have been born into for freedom of speech don't necessarily give the right message or the right information. Yes, that's right. That's right. And Leo, one of the things, and actually that um, we were planning, we actually were supposed to speak to Amy Ann Pant yesterday, pulled out and withdrawn from the podcast. Uh, so we will never get to have that conversation. But we did speak to uh, a PDF member, uh, a filmmaker who um, joined PDF forces after being arrested for peacefully protesting, spending 25, I think, days in insane prison. And he came out and he was more determined than ever that he was never going to accept uh, military rule after what he'd been through and what he'd witnessed. And he joined a PDF group in Yangon. Uh, he wasn't in a position to travel to ethnic areas at that time. So he wanted to join something in the city and see how he could help. And he joined these seminars that these defensive seminars that the article exposed. And he talked to us about how exposed they were, how much it set back their operations. And he felt it was military propaganda. I mean, do you see that? Like, does that kind of thing help the military? Because we saw the article then. It was translated into Burmese and it was actually published in a military newspaper in the country. So does that help the military, even if it wasn't the intention? Sure, it does. Yeah, it does. You know, I don't think she is in any way related to the military. They have their own intentions, but the consequences are they definitely help the military to show that, uh, you know, every day on, because I'm every day, my social media my world is truly in, embedded within what they are saying. And to, just today, I saw a post by a military propaganda account. And they actually did a photo shoot of a soldier defending a school. And behind the soldier, there were two 
uh, school kids that were taking cover and was, you know, supposedly defending the school from the PDF members who are attacking the school. And this propaganda account, Bright's bilingual, and he's saying, soldier protecting school children as PDF is trying to attack, something like that. I will send you a screenshot. So this is what they want to say. And without a doubt, that article is evidence for them, or not direct evidence, but, you know, contextual evidence or anecdotal evidence uh, to say, oh, look, you know, we're not we're not making shit up. You know, this guy, Dr. Sasa, yes, he is truly trying to kill our kids. So, yeah, uh, they will use it as anecdotal evidence. And like in terms of that, then, Leo, when we when we look at and that kind of thing, saying, look at us protecting, you know, from the PDFs. And, and this is a concern that the PDFs are being painted as this evil entity, this force that needs to be destroyed. And it feels like, you know, people preaching nonviolence in the West, not necessarily just Western people. There's a lot of Burmese people preaching nonviolence too. They've yet to give us better solutions, but, and that's another story, but they're preaching this, but it's actually by doing that, they're indirectly speaking against PDFs. And that's how the military is twisting it, at least. So is the risks to PDFs going up every time somebody does that? Like, are they more likely to be killed on site or tortured if suspected of being a PDF without even getting to prison these days because of this narrative that's been pushed that, that they're a danger to the people? Mm, I couldn't say that. Like I said, I think you would need much more causational evidence to support a link between the narrative that PDF is violent and the consequence of PDF members being killed on the spot. So I wouldn't draw any direct links between those two phenomena. Sorry, I sound a very academic answer. (laughs) (laughs) I think, um, Suzanne, the guy that you quoted saying that the more people that defect from the military, the, the more violence is going to be, he's implying that the military are keeping the peace. It's implying that by having more soldiers, it's more peaceful, which is an incredibly dangerous message to be giving. What I'm trying to get at here in, in terms of your point of as an increase in PDFs means increased violence. The statement that by having them as part of the military means there's not violence is like an oxymoron. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it's not. It maybe isn't an oxymoron. My English isn't brilliant. I'm trying to be academic now, Leo, and I'm not. And uh, to be honest with you, I was going to uh, write shit on his post. And then I re- read it again. And truly, I don't understand what he's saying. It's a nonsensical post. It's a nonsensical sentence. And I controlled my <laughs> urge to say shit on. <laughs> and I really thought, I mean, this guy is an academic, so I could call him. And maybe I, I'm thinking that I might uh, call his office tomorrow. Tomorrow, Monday, I can call his department in the university. And I say, hey, you know, uh, very uh, civil, uh, in a civil way. Uh, what, what do you mean by this? Actually, maybe you should uh, do uh, like a talk show where you bring two people and, you know, like Family Feud in America. I love it. <laughs> I'm just thinking, just when you said that, it reminded me of this other article that has come out um, in the last week. And it's, you know, why Myanmar must take this strategic nonviolent path. And again, you know, we debated long and hard about whether we would respond to that. And again, it was so nonsensical and it was so badly written and so like <laughs> not, it just wasn't worth our energy. And it feels like there's like, a, I guess what they, these all have in common is not only are they I mean, got their own agendas or they promote whatever it is they're trying to promote. But they're so badly written that it, it kind of like you almost have to become dumb to be able to like get down to the level to argue with it. And it just it, it's just really tiring. So, yeah, there's a real um what, what would you call it? A stupidity pandemic going on across like reporters or academics at the moment. But how 
how in touch are any of these people realistically with what's going on on the ground? Because I feel like, you know, we're educators, you know, we wouldn't call ourselves, you know, academics um, in, in that prestigious word that they like to use for themselves. But I feel like we know a hell of a lot more than these guys know. So like, who are they talking to? Where are they getting their information? Like, are they just like spouting this off based on sources from a very long time ago? Or what's your take on that? Have you been watching these and reading these things and saying to yourself, like, what planet are these guys on? Yes, yes, I come across them on Twitter, but thankfully I don't use Twitter that much, so I don't really know what's going on until someone tells me. But sometimes when I go on Twitter, I always end up saying things I wouldn't say if I knew that person or saw him face to face. But to answer your question, I, I don't think these people are in touch at all, in touch, I mean, including uh, him and them, they are not in touch at all uh, with what's going on. Uh, and I don't mean just academically in touch. To be academically or maybe factually in touch is to be reading the news uh, straight from the source, uh, not from companies that are ripping off local journalists like Xera, uh, which are just regurgitating information from here and there. They've done a terrible job sometimes, inserted their own twist on facts. But they're not in touch at all. And uh, to be honest with you, I feel that they know that they are getting sidelined and maybe they have to say something controversial to get on the agenda again. It is the same tactic that Donald Trump used to get ahead in the polls, to get more publicity. And to be honest with you, I think we should really stop talking about these people because whenever they say something ludicrous, then the people attack them and there there will always be people who are going to defend them. And before you know it, it is just a big battle between the supporters and the, you know, non-supporters. Actually, you all should watch this. uh, I'm sure you know South Park, right? If you know South Park, you should watch this uh, episode called Danish Trolls. And basically the story is that... uh, the father of one of the kids, I forgot his name. Anyway, his hobby is at night, he trolls women. And you know, he writes these ludicrous comments, right? A very rude and ludicrous comments. And then he meets the other trolls in the United States. And he explains his trolling strategy. And he says, the art of trolling is to make some ludicrous comment about someone. And then people will attack you because you said that. And then people will attack the people who attacked you because they are so woke uh, and they are so liberal. And before you know it, the chaos has descended far from what you were saying to just people attacking each other based on one post, right? And that's what I feel is happening. So next time, you know, Richard Horsey or Mary Callahan or that guy from that university say something, we should not tweet it, we should not like it. Because at the end of the day, it's also how social media works. The more we like it, the more we comment on it, the more the algorithms will make sure that it stays on the news feed for a longer time. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with you in terms of like having to ignore that. And I understand people who feel a responsibility to respond because I guess the things and and those people you mentioned, like these ludicrous things that they're writing, um, you know, but so many people think these guys are experts and believe that. And, you know, they do have the ability to, I guess, impact policy in Western countries. You know, they are the people whose reports are going to be read by the government in their countries more more than likely. So how do you push back against that disinformation or that that what what they're presenting without giving them that kind of, you know, attention that they seem to want to get? As you say, like, you know, even if it's like angry attention, it's still attention, which is better than them becoming, you know, nobody and nobody interacting with them. So how do you counter it 
without giving it any more <laughs> any more attention? Oh, well, we have to try harder than them. They've made it a career to report on the country on Myanmar, right? So now we have to we have to do what they're doing. So I mean, if uh, let's say you know someone is proficient in English, then he or she should try to write op-eds for foreign newspapers, right? He or she should publish more articles. And we are seeing that already, you know, with a lot of young people now having access to Twitter or whatnot. So basically what we need to do is to rival uh, their information production, right? And that's what we have to do. Uh, to be honest with you, I think we're wasting too much time attacking them personally and academically on Twitter. But instead, we should be countering the narrative. Uh, there are so many platforms for us to write. If we can't find a news publication, we should uh, we can just start a, our own medium blogging page and write write content there. We should start a website and just uh, write content there uh, straight from the source. And to be honest with you, I, I don't think there is like one website that is people can contribute writing to. And to be honest, let's say you know it's let's say you're the United States Senator or you are a parliament member from the UK, and Richard Horsey's report is on his table, and then someone emails me and saying, "Hey, okay," but then there's this whole website that is saying the views of all the local people in Myanmar, and if such a website exists with so many publications by the people of Myanmar, then I think whoever is a policymaker will have to take it seriously. And I think they will too. So we should concentrate our efforts on rivaling their narrative by producing our own narrative. Yeah, I think that's good advice because, as you say, people are pouring their energy into getting into these arguments on Twitter where they could actually be just writing their own article with the true uh, situation. But I guess the thing is, and, and there's something that we're learning all the time here, is that people have so many agendas that we just didn't even ever think like we just thought people are suffering, people are dying. Everyone's going to know this is wrong. And it's just really like it's been eye opening for us how that isn't the reaction of a large number of people. It's a reaction of, oh, how can I step into Myanmar right now and take advantage of this situation? How can I use this? How can I use this to, you know, get more things published? So for a lot of people, this is like a really great opportunity to advance their careers or to make themselves relevant uh, where they are maybe not relevant in their own countries or in their own fields. And this is not just Western people, because I could say this about a number of Myanmar people, too, who are using this opportunity to advance their own careers and their own situations. So how do you ensure if you do set up something that that's not what it becomes, you know, because, you know, people often start out with good intentions and then their own egos and their own, you know, ambitions take over. So how can you be sure that you don't become them in the other way? Uh, the answer to that question is also the answer to the question, how do you not become a dictator? Because I'm sure when Myanmar was born, you know, he didn't want to be a dictator, you know. <laughs> um, but maybe sometime 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we started getting the feeling that, hey, uh, maybe I should be a dictator. But there's no easy answer to what you said, you know, uh, like I said. But it just has to be self-policed. It has to have a good leadership and a good team to make sure that it does not stray away from its original purpose. More an organizational thing rather than a philosophical question, I think, or an academic one. Um, The other thing I want to ask about was when you're talking psychological warfare, and obviously I know a big part of what you're trying to do is to get the soldiers to defect. What about the idea of starting to use a hero narrative? Is that something that you've considered? Because we've seen that in past conflicts in the world, how powerful the narrative of a hero can be to the people at times like this. Is, is that something on your on your agenda or something you thought about in terms of, you know, trying to lift the heroes of the country up at a time like this? 
I think we have enough pro-PDF and pro-democracy people to make the PDF the heroes. <laughs> that is not in short supply. Uh, what is in short supply is uh, people who will try to reach out to the soldiers. Uh, that is in short supply. And to be honest, uh, we need to also make heroes of defectors uh, because uh, they are heroes. Uh, no doubt they are heroes, you know. I mean, and they could have been in a position of privilege and power, but they have decided to stand for justice, be on the run, be executed or being shot. And we need to lionize them so that many people inside and like I, like I said before, many people, many soldiers inside, they are depressed, they are exhausted. And I think to show them an avenue where not only will they be liberated from the mundane activities of security patrolling, but they will be rewarded with fame and honor by the people. I think it's a very enticing prospect for these soldiers. How does the average person become a soldier? What is the attraction and what is the kind of I guess, social economic background of, of your average person that becomes a soldier in Myanmar? Firstly, you know, in every military, there are two types of soldiers. Right? There are the commissioned officers and the non-commissioned officers or the enlisted soldiers, as they say. Uh, in Myanmar, you don't need a high school diploma to become an enlisted soldier. So some of these enlisted soldiers, uh, for example, Van Shui, Van Shui, he started out as an enlisted soldier. He didn't go to the military academies. So in order to be accepted into the military academy, you need a high school diploma. So the military academy of Myanmar, uh, the, the, the most famous one is uh, Defense Services Academy. And that's like Sandhurst or West Point. You need a high school diploma and it's a college degree. You get a university degree. But uh, Dan Shui, he actually only finished grade four, I believe, primary four. So there are many soldiers like, but then, you know, he then became a commission officer and then rose up the ranks. But in order to just be a non-commissioned enlisted soldier, and you don't need anything, you just sign up. But most of the time, many of them choose to sign up only because they are promised pay, they are promised food. But those promises are also quite hollow as well, because if you talk to soldiers, you'll find out that Actually, many of them come out of the military in debt or, you know, in less favorable circumstances than they had gone into. And then there are also a bunch of people who go in because they want to uh, not be prosecuted for any criminal cases that they are being pursued for. So if you join the military and if you have a misdemeanor record, then the military wipes that misdemeanor record for you. But what I'm trying to say is that maybe 5% or maybe 10% of all the soldiers, even the officers, sign up to be in the military because they truly want to become a soldier. Many of them just do it as, an, you know, an opportunity to have a secure income or to have you know, a slightly better life than what they were having before. But of course, you know, a little bit of honor plays a role in there, but I don't think that's the uh, determining thing. In terms of your... um you know, your propaganda that you use and stuff? Will there be a, a percentage of soldiers that will be illiterate, that won't speak Burmese? Uh, well, they will speak Burmese. Um, whether they write Burmese or read Burmese. If they're on Facebook, I think they do need to read Burmese. Yeah, I, I just, I was just wondering in terms of, like, I mean, I'm thinking in terms of basic propaganda, when it first started and posters and stuff, and it was very visual, whereas a lot of the, the propaganda that, like even before the coup, the, the stuff that I was seeing, like the beatings in the, in jungles and stuff, it was very visual and it wasn't necessarily written text. I just wondered whether that was a, an important aspect. Oh, yes. You know, it is an important aspect. To be honest with you, uh, digital propaganda is just like running a marketing campaign. You can talk to any person that works in a digital marketing agency. And, you know, on social media, people are scrolling through the news feed very quickly. 
And you need to have a very enticing photo that captures the attention of the person. And that essentially makes the person stop for a while. And the next thing that the person reads, caption. And in fact, I think there's some sort of rule in digital marketing where basically once a person stops at your post, you have two seconds to capture the attention of that person, of the consumer, right? So you need a very strong tagline, a caption. And we have employed all the traits that a digital marketer would use. You know, a photo that is eye-catching with a little text, bright colors, and a tagline that makes you want to read more. And then uh, we actually have a proper guideline for all our writers on how to write uh, content that captures the attention of the soldiers. One of the things, Leo, I mean, I'm sure you guys have thought of this. If I'm worried about it, I'm sure it worries you guys too. But I mean, we talk to a lot of people on the ground. And one of the things that we keep hearing repeatedly is this kind of fear everyone has of each other, of somebody else, of the neighbours, the Dalans. How can you ensure that those soldiers that defect are not infiltrating you guys, that they are not pretending to be defectors just to get into your operations, to build your trust, just to turn on you? Like, how do you ensure that or can you? Well, you know, firstly, to, to defect is not an easy process. And from what I've heard, the military has tried to message these groups that are helping the soldiers, like People's Embrace and People's Soldiers, uh, trying to draw information about where they are hideouts and safe places are. But to be honest with you, I think one would have to really uh, put in a lot of effort to go through the entire process of defection and then try to leak any information because the, the defectors, they are in liberated zones or they are in hideouts across the country and they have to travel for many days. And then, of course, even when they are where they are, uh, I'm sure there's a debriefing of some sort. So it's a physically exhaustive and mentally draining journey that they have to do and that is in itself a barrier to to being a spy and i don't think the military just has the capacity to to do that uh, at the moment you know the military is not like it's actually what your question reminds me of this show called the americans i think it's on netflix it's about these sleeper agents whether the the ussr and soviet sent so maybe there is i don't know but but so far so far, there has been no security compromises, and there have already been thousands of defectors. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it will take another two months before these sleeper agents wake up. Maybe there are no sleeper agents, right? But there's always the risk, yes. But I think that risk is mitigated by the fact that defection itself is a very physically exhaustive and mentally draining process. And number two, uh, once you are where you are, it's not like you are living in a silo. You are going to be the minority and if you are someone that's fishy, then I'm sure you'll be found out as well. But I guess there doesn't need to be somebody to infiltrate the group only for people to fear that somebody might, because that's all you need is people to fear it, for people to not trust the soldiers, to not accept them. So how do you bridge that? Is that part of your propaganda, how to make the people accept the soldiers? Uh, right, right, right. Uh, that is not part of our portfolio, but that is something that uh, the group People Soldier is uh, trying very hard to do. Essentially, the, the advocacy method is both to the soldiers to defect and also to the people to to be more welcoming of defectors. I mean, nobody wants to, you know, if I'm an immigrant, I, I'm not going to immigrate to Afghanistan. You know, I want to immigrate to the UK. Uh, I'm seeking a better life. So it's the same thing, you know, if I'm going to pick it up or everything or leave everything, I should say, and go to a new place. I, I want it to be a place that is better than where I am currently at. 
And right now, I, I can say with confidence that a huge majority of the people are supportive of defectors, are supportive of the defections movement. But I mean, there will always be people who are cynical about soldiers and what they do and what they truly are. So I think that's something that you can't just uh, ever statistically eliminate. And I just wanted to ask then, Leo, what can people do? What can the average person in Myanmar or outside of Myanmar who wants to help do in terms of helping your, your operations? Is there anything that people can do? There are so many things people can do. And to be honest with you, because we have to operate in uh, secrecy, it is such a inhibiting factor. If we could just reach to millions of people and say, create a fake Facebook account right now, just search. I mean, I think both of you should do this afterwards to see how easy it is to participate in psychological warfare operations. You just need to create a fake Facebook account. Uh, if you're using Facebook, then go to the search bar and type in Damarol in Burmese or in English even. Uh, and then you will see many pages, many pro Damarol pages, many pro Damarol accounts and pro Damarol groups. Just join one of them and soon Facebook will start recommending people that you should add as friends. Uh, and you will see thousands of soldiers that are actively using Facebook. And there you have it. You have a direct access to thousands of soldiers that you can speak to, send messages. And if Millions of us are participating in that process. Our efforts will be much, much bigger. The military has a big propaganda department. In fact, Reuters wrote about it not too long ago. Uh, they have a very big propaganda department, and they have thousands of people working in it. That is their big strength. I mean, they, they have the strength of organization, right? At the end of the day, they are a military force. But we have the strength of the people, right? But right now, you know, my group, we are only about 21 people. And we're going to recruit more in the coming month. But anybody, you too even, can be involved in the psychological warfare operation from wherever you are. And I would like to call upon the Burmese diaspora living in the rest of the world to open a fake Facebook and VK account today and stop adding soldiers as friends and just message them. If there's nothing that you can message, just copy the Facebook page of people, soldiers or people embrace and just drop it into their, you know, chat because you never know if that soldier wants to defect, but doesn't know that these organizations exist. And if that person is someone who's looking for help and you somehow message him saying, Hey, there's an organization that is willing to help. I mean, you are a hero. You have just helped this guy defect from the military. And I assume, Leo, as you say, <laughs> I I have no social media at all in the world. <laughs> I'm trying to think of me trying to figure out how to do this. But it's it's so interesting how easy it is to just set up a Facebook account and suddenly be able to access all of these people. Do they just accept these? Like, do you, is it is it still Facebook? I mean, I, I knew Facebook years ago. Do you still have to like request to be friends? Do people just accept anybody to be their friend? Is it is it that simple? Uh, that is the weakness in our strength. Uh, a lot of these soldiers. To be honest with you, if you use, if you are uh, every day, you know, with my multitude of phones and multitude of accounts, I I look at them and I and I pity, I've become to pity them even more because even if they are on security patrol, like parading through the city with guns, they're still taking TikTok videos. They are just like your average teenage kid. They just want normal lives, but somehow. They're trapped inside of this institution and they themselves are the prisoner. So that, that is why, you know, we, we need to reach out to them. To be honest with you, I, I think uh, many of these people themselves are the victims of the generals. 
And uh, this is what I say to my group members always. I mean, uh, right now, even though I'm in Myanmar, I can speak to you, you know, I'm speaking about me online. I'm speaking about all these things I'm doing. Even though I'm a civilian under a military dictatorship, I am living a life that is much, 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 much freer than a soldier wearing a uniform, having a gun in his hand and having the right to shoot at anyone, which is very oxymoronic if you think about it, because you would think the person with the gun has the power and the privilege to be free and to be, you know, to exert his authority. But actually, it is not the case. And I think we should reach out to them. I'm in the UK. It's Remembrance Day here today. And it's a huge deal. And everyone buys a poppy and things. And there's this like saying, saying, lest we forget. And it always frustrates me. And I understand how important it is for nations to be nationalistic about their military past. But I do really respect the fact that there was countless numbers of boys that had to sign up through conscription and were sent over for generals with no no control over the decision process and just literally sent to their death. And it always frustrates me that it's less we forget. And I'm always thinking, what about all those people around the world that are still in that situation and still have no no choice but to, to be under generals and not be able to make their own, own decisions? And I think what you just said just there just like perfectly articulates that on a, on a day when it's very poignant here too. What I'm wondering Leo is I'm thinking how dangerous is this for the soldiers? I mean I've seen some reports where people were very close to defecting and then they were caught. Now, I, I mean obviously I've just read the, these in newspapers I mean they may or may not be true and then they were killed or tortured or imprisoned. So Obviously, there's huge risk. So if I have a fa- Facebook account and I'm promoting this and I'm saying, and, and then somebody like, yeah, they want to get out and then they go through all that and then they get caught and they die. I mean, is that is that something that like is a worry you feel bad about? Uh, yes, you know, it, the, it is a risk. And um, I mean, it is a risk, but it is the, the, the primary responsibility is for that soldier to manage. Everybody is bearing risk at this moment. I mean, uh, from the if you look at it from the opposite side, that very very famous criminal code uh, five hundred five, right? Uh, every time I have message a soldier, uh, that is one criminal offense under five hundred five because it is encouraging soldiers to mutiny and to disobey orders. That is Article five hundred five, Section C. It is exactly that, and that carries a higher criminal penalty than five hundred five, Section A, which is for civil servants. So every time I'm messaging or comment, I'm liable to be prosecuted under this criminal code too. And he's also liable to be prosecuted too. So the risk is there. And I mean, if someone is hurt, someone is harmed, it is very unfortunate. So we must just try our best with the best of intentions. But we cannot eliminate this risk. It will be. And I mean, I don't know if you know the answer to this, Leo, but I mean, how smart is Min online? Because he seems like, you know, pretty stupid in many ways. But yeah, he is in this position right now and he has managed to take, well, he hasn't taken full control, but you know, he's got himself in a pretty good position. Like, are these military, like, top generals, are they smart? Are they intelligent? Are they stupid? I mean, I would just be curious if you have any anything to offer on that. Uh, yes, yes. We should not underestimate our enemy, uh, no matter how stupid the enemy may sound. In fact, if we all think that Myanmar is stupid, then the enemy has already triumphed because in any war, you always want to entrap the enemy by thinking that you are about to lose. You can find better phrase to quote to what I said from Sun Tzu. Uh, but th- th- that is essentially the strategy, right? But I do not think Myanmar is stupid. I think he is smart. And actually, all the top generals are smart. You have to be smart to be a top general. And by smart, I don't mean it, like academically smart. 
If you understand about the Myanmar military, it's a very cutthroat organization. Everybody is spying on each other. It is, it is like politics, but you don't lose elections, you lose your life. And because the stakes are higher, the moves are even riskier and even more complicated, I would say. So these people are, might even be smarter than us, to be honest with you, in terms of manipulating enemies and manipulating each other. So we have to, we have to always bear that in mind and not think that it's stupid. Uh, you know, to be honest with you, I think they installed that guy, Zomelo. Uh, he speaks stupid doubt, right? And people think, oh my God, how general? I think maybe it might be a, a foil to make sure that the general people think that they are stupid by uh, having someone that is saying stupid shit on, right on TV. <laughs> but no, I do not think they're stupid. They're pretty smart. Like when you're saying that, that Minan Lang is smart and these guys know what they're doing. Um, and it is because they have a lot of academics in the West believing them. So they must be smart enough. But in terms of a counter coup, is that a possibility? Would that be a long term goal? Is there anyone in the top ranks that, that could turn with the people? Do you think, or do you think, no, it'll just have to just keep being defectors and hopefully try to get one big, one big unit to defect? What will be a good outcome in, in the coming months? Do you think? It's hard to say, but I'm very confident that there are people, uh, generals, who are not very happy. So, you know, Brigadier General Piotan, who is the commander of the Northwest region, he tried to defect. He was already in contact with the NUG, in contact with the Chin Defense Forces, but he was arrested just before he was about to defect. And now, you know, he and his whole family and all his close associates are arrested and in prison. And uh, this is a very important regional command because it is where the Chin and the Zagang fighting is going on. There are many, I'm sure, generals who are very unhappy with what's going on. And I do think that Meonai himself, although I did say that he is smart, he did not expect the level of resistance that would rise because of his actions. I think that is one thing that he didn't expect. And it's also because, you know, in the culture of, and not just in the military culture, but in Myanmar culture, you are surrounded by yes men. But the people around you never say anything contrary to what the boss is saying. You always agree to what the boss is saying. So he was in a silo and he missed out that fact, which is good because now he's making a mistake. But uh, it is a possibility, but it is a possibility that will not just rise by itself. We have to create the conditions for that possibility to rise. And you should uh, check out that uh, film, Valkyrie, uh, with Tom Cruise as this uh, colonel, I forgot his name, Stauffenberg. Uh, it was about, you know, the military officers, including top generals in the Nazi army that were trying to assassinate Hitler and then trying to negotiate peace with the Allies because they knew that Germany was going to lose and they knew that if Germany lose, the Allies would carve up the country and the Allies would not accept anything less than unconditional surrender. Right. And uh, to be honest, if we win, we will not accept anything other than unconditional surrender. If we have to win through a big military battle, right? But I don't think that is win, but we are not like the allies during World War II. We do not have the military might and the means to inflict this kind of damage upon the Dumbarol. So what needs to happen is that we need to create the conditions. Firstly, you need to think that your leader is a bad leader. And second, you need to also fear for your own future should you lose, right? So the number one fact is already done because Myanmar himself, he launched this coup, stupid mistake, and now everybody's resisting, including people within the uh, military. But the second one, right, we need to make sure that the top generals fear for their own future, fear for the future of their families. And how do we do that? Well, we, we can do that through two means. 
One is militarily, we need to inflict a damage upon them so that they start thinking, wow, you know, there is a big possibility that we might lose. And if we lose, then me, my family, my kids, and my entire society, you know, might be hurt. And second is through psychological warfare, right? We need to at least make them think that they will lose. So it's a two-ploy attack, you know, against them. So do you see that the only way anyone on a very high level would defect or go to the other side and, and side with the people is if they feel that they are going to lose personally? Like it needs to be that feeling that they're going to lose out and they're going to lose their privileges uh, rather than any kind of it's the right thing to do. You know, I do think um, when people look out more for their self-interest, especially if you are general and have lots of money, you become more concerned. I mean, the, the defectors that we have seen so far, the captains, they truly think that it is a just uh, decision that they're making, right? The right decision, a morally right decision. But if you are general, you learn to set your morals aside because now you've enriched yourself, right? So I think that it is true that we need to make sure that they are feeling the heat. And this is my advice to the NUG, if the NUG will ever listen to this podcast, which is that, and maybe they're already doing it, I don't know, right? Which is to, you know, try to seek out these people who are on the fence and just make a deal with them. Just need to start making deals with these people and say, hey, you know, uh, come over to our side. We'll do this for you. We'll do that for you. We'll make sure that you have immunity to some degree or whatnot. We will pardon you for whatever. And if they have a good deal, then they will side with the person that's giving them a better deal. Yeah, like another thing that always comes to mind when I think about what's happening in Myanmar and I, and I think about the military and what, what Min Ang Lang must have been thinking when he decided to do this. And, and I often think about Mao's great famine and like how much were people telling him, oh, yeah, you know, all of all of the things he wanted to hear that were not true so that he didn't see the resistance that he would face. I mean, would that be the kind of thing that people in his circles and people who had contact with him would be telling him, yeah, no, everyone voted for you. Everyone voted for the military. No one voted for NLD. You know, would they have been giving him that information? Is that why he would have believed he would have had the people's support? Yes. In fact, uh, if you look back at the news around, I think, this time last year, or maybe earlier than that, there were, I think, I forgot the exact number, it was maybe 32 or 42 party heads, including the, you know, PPP. They met with, with me online. The details of the conversation were not too clear, but they met with me online. These parties themselves believe that the NLD committed electoral fraud. And they met with me online to say, should there ever be electoral fraud, then you as a commander in chief have the responsibility to step in. These people, I, I personally believe that these party members should be prosecuted for attempting rebellion because they met with the rebel leader, me online. By the way, Myanmar is the rebel. We are not the rebels. We are the true armed force of Myanmar. And the NUG is the elected government of Myanmar. Myanmar is the rebel force that overthrew the democratically elected government. And therefore, all his soldiers are rebel soldiers. And the party members uh, and all the politicians right now who are serving under him are aiding and abetting rebellion and treason against the state. And these people must be prosecuted after we have won. But to answer your question, yes, you know, they went to him. And so he must have thought, oh, wow, look at all these political leaders who are meeting me and saying that, oh, I should come in and save the day, right? Be the knight in shining armor. And I think he really believed in that. Uh, I think and I have worked for the government before as well. And there's this culture of, like I said, yes, man, right? Or yes, ma'am, or yes, sir. But that is good. 
That is good because if they continue to have that culture, then they will continue to make mistakes. But that is good in so far as we don't have that culture do. We need to have full access to information so that we're always making the right decision. Right. And uh, I think the NUG is doing a much better job because obviously they need the support of people, financial support, moral support, political support. They are always speaking to people, speaking to diaspora communities, speaking to these groups, activists. So we're doing a better job, but we can always do better. But it is good if the military is in, in the silo and making decisions based on incorrect information. And I guess the last thing I want to ask you, and this is just because it's been fascinating listening to you. So I just want to get your perspective on this. But like I and I could be wrong, but my instincts tell me that I don't see the people ever siding with the military again. Uh, I mean, maybe a new military, but not this one. But also, I don't know how long they can hang in there. I mean, they're doing amazing, especially CDM people, PDFs, all of these people are doing incredible to have hung in as long as they have. Is it a matter of if the military were to consolidate their power, which they haven't done yet, it will be because people are tired, because people just give up, not that they will ever side with the military, but they, they feel like if the military, you know, has control and people can get back to their lives, is that more likely how they would win in terms of people would just be too tired to keep fighting and they would just give in? That is a possibility. And to, to be honest with you, I think anybody who is uh, involved in the revolution cannot blame the people, the public, should they ever get exhausted of revolution. I mean, throughout history, we've always seen cases where fascists and dictators have made it. So the narrative of order, right, the, the narrative of order always comes after a time of chaos, right? Chaos always precedes order. Right. And that's how these dictators, they utilize that. And that is something that all dictators, kings and warlords have utilized for millenniums. Right. Going back to the start of civilization. And at the end of the day, you know, if you are a normal person, you need to get on with your life. And I don't know how much longer Myanmar people can hold. But right now we're doing a fabulous job and we must continue to hold the fort. I am very confident that we are winning, but but we must never be complacent. We must always be marching forward every day so that the people believe in our PDF members, all the local PDF forces and everyone who's involved in it so that they never lose the will. And even though I said that was the last thing, just one other thing. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, I just wondered, Leo, when we talk about PDFs and we talk about these defense forces and, and it is they are defense forces they are defending themselves their people their country but it is considered a, a violent resistance okay and we have a lot of people preaching uh, you know in Myanmar outside of Myanmar for a non-violent approach okay but they're not really supporting either the non-violent approaches such as CDM and also the defections because the defections is a peaceful initiative I mean there's no bloodshed I mean obviously there are dangers and risks but it is a peaceful way to show opposition and to help the soldiers to defect. So why are we not seeing some of these people who are pro nonviolence and who are pushing that agenda, not supporting or not speaking out for things like CDM and these defections? Why are we not seeing that more, do you think? Uh, I don't know. I, I would have to know more about each of them to to try to guess well, why they are saying what they are saying. Uh, it could be a it could be you know a bunch of reasons. Maybe they just want to be on the moral high ground and preach preach to the choir. 
or maybe they just want the fame and the popularity on social media, or maybe they're truly stupid, or you know, maybe they're not in touch, maybe they do not have the right information, right? And maybe they don't have the right information because they are not seeking the right information. So it could be a bunch of reasons. But I think overall, what I can definitely agree is that uh, they're stupid. And number two is... Um, uh, they're doing more harm than good, for sure, you know. And by harm, not f- just physical harm, but, you know, harming the revolutionary cause. So, yes, you know, I think uh, I'm very happy to speak to any one of them, explain to them very clearly. And in fact, I think I will, tomorrow I will call up that professor from Australia, I think, right? And just ask, uh, what do you mean by this? And just ask him to explain. Maybe he'll have an explanation uh, when he has the chance to speak. Or maybe he'll just say more nonsensical stuff. Like, I like pizza, and pizza is violent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're good points. Yeah, I often wonder, I think, you know, for a lot of people, obviously, any kind of revolution, any kind of upset to the status quo is going to upset people's business interests. It's going to upset their lives. And people don't like when their lives get upset. And I think for a lot of these people, ooh, you know, I've had to, like, listen, I had to leave Myanmar. I had to give up my job, everything, you know, but... I, I, I fully support what the people are doing, but for a lot of people, maybe they're not prepared to give anything up. And, you know, they believe in the rights of people, except when they lose. Uh, you know, we, we want everyone to have equal rights, except when I personally am going to lose as a result of that. And, and I think, you know, someone we spoke to recently, he did say, like, when things like this happened, you have to be prepared to lose a little bit of your privilege and your comforts and you have to be able to sacrifice and Maybe some people are just not willing to make any sacrifices. So instead, they, you know, they're, they're spouting their own, uh, their own agenda to hold on to their privileges and the things that they have. But, um, it's disappointing because I do feel like a lot of these people are actually helping the military indirectly. You know, I mean, some of these people are being quoted on these sites that you're talking about in these Facebook pages, which is not helpful to the people and those who've already died as well. You know, like you forget that so many people have already died for this. So, yeah, I would just like to see them do better. And if they believe in nonviolence, then I'd like to see them supporting some of these nonviolent methods that are happening, like CDM, defections and sanctions, sanction, you know, oil and gas industries and all of these big, big companies. So, yeah, it's just disappointing that, as you say, they're on the kind of moral high ground spouting something, but not offering anything in return so i'd like to see them do better for sure and they don't need to offer anything in return because they don't have anything to lose if we lose right i mean if we lose then my future and uh, the future of my future generations the future of so many people that i know will be lost right but a lot of these quote-unquote experts uh, they'll just go to another country you know south sudan or maybe cameron and write more about <laughs> what's happening there right so they are marooning quote-unquote experts so they, they don't need to offer because uh, they, they have no stake in the game. So yeah, you know. So I really, if any of those people are listening, it, the Myanmar people are very nice people and we will explain anything to you should you seek out information. And tomorrow I will call the professor and, you know, explain to him what the defection strategy is and then also give him a chance to explain to me what nonsensical things he was saying. <laughs> oh. I love it. I love that you just like, I'm going to call him up. <laughs> That's what we should be doing. You know, these Twitter people put your number on and have a conversation about it because, you know, these, these short character things. Yeah. It's, it's not a good space. And, you know, when we look at the algorithm and all this Facebook stuff that came out about how it, you know, promotes, you know, you know, our worst feelings and anger. I really feel Twitter is kind of, if, if we ever get like anyone to whistleblow about their algorithms, it puts stupid things, you know, on it instead. And it kind of, 
because it's more, I guess, a place for journalists, academics, people like that. It's just triggering when something stupid appears in front of you. <laughs> and I feel like the algorithm is pushing stupid information to get a reaction. So yeah, trying to um, sit on our hands and not react is, uh, is the key there, I think. But yeah, this has been a super great conversation, actually, because I didn't know how it was going to go. And I thought, how do we talk to someone without like saying anything about the person? And it's been great. I've learned so much. And I guess we'll just encourage people to, you know, if they want to help with the defections, that they're simply setting up Facebook pages, getting involved in that way. And is there anywhere we can direct them for more information? Or is that a thing like people's soldiers, I guess they could uh, go and, and watch those things on Sundays, um, those Zooms. Is there anything else that you wanted to add that we didn't touch on or that we didn't ask you or anything, anything we left out? Uh, my final message is people should immediately after listening to this podcast, create a fake Facebook or VK account and just start spreading propaganda. And th there are some propaganda channels from our side, Telegram propaganda channels, where you can just copy and paste the propaganda that, you know, cyber groups are writing. Even if it's not just that, but just to copy and paste the news from pages like Kithit and DVB and then just making sure that the soldiers see it, that in itself is psychological warfare. Because if the soldiers then are in silos and they are told not to believe what the media is writing, but if they see information that shows that they are being killed in big numbers, they are losing that is a very uh, demoralizing uh, information for them to see. And that is the essence of psychological warfare. So anybody can participate at any moment in a very simple process. Uh, just to say to people on Twitter, do not comment, do not like, do not retweet any of these stupid things that all these stupid people are saying. That, you know, <laughs> because otherwise we are enlarging their voice. Donald Trump knows of this, and that's why, you know, he tweets more and more ludicrous stuff, because people will report on it, and then people will talk about it, and that just gives him more publicity, right? So, you know, in the publicity world, there's such a thing as there's no such thing as bad publicity, because publicity is publicity, and we should not be giving them publicity of any kind. Thank you for listening to Arnar Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at Arnar Podcast, spelled A-H-N-A-H. Please like, follow and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.